Have you ever felt a victim of your own success? Or perhaps better put, a victim of your own reputation? You become known for something, an expertise or an experience or a moment. You claim it perhaps as some sort of personal brand. And then people assume that's it about you, the sum total. How do you keep confounding others' expectations of you? And perhaps more importantly, how do you keep confounding your own expectations of yourself? Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that's moved them, a book that has shaped them. Dr. Victor Mancharamani is the author of Think for Yourself, Restoring Common Sense in an Age of Experts and Artificial Intelligence. And he's lectured at Harvard and Yale. He's a LinkedIn top voice around finance and economics. So, you know, he knows a bit about building a reputation. But when he describes himself, it's not his expertise that he focuses upon. I think of myself very simply as a global generalist. And by that, I mean, I don't like being put in a box. By that, I mean, I don't want to be thought of as just an academic because I'm also a non-academic. Uh, some people have called me a pracademic, right? Because I try to be practical while also being an academic. Um, and so I, I, I try to cross silos, if you will, but that makes me self-describe as a global generalist because I take a big picture view across industries, sectors, and functions. That's a tough stance to take when the world around us constantly wants us to be neatly categorized and predictable. And the pressure to be that way causes many to conform, but not this man. Vikram believes that, yes, deep focus is powerful, but also risks generating broad ignorance. So here's his plan. I have conscientiously worked on becoming a multidisciplinary person. And that means that the way I've resisted the boxes is going into a box, jumping out, going to another box, jumping out, going to another box, and not feeling overly comfortable in any box. Uh, and I find that's the value in my approach. Well, that jumping in and jumping out, doesn't that destroy focus? Or maybe just you simply end up collecting a whole lot of boxes. But Claude Debussy, the composer, said, music is the space between the notes. And I think Vikram has a similar perspective on what's useful here. When you move from box to box, what you find is the real value, at least as I see it, is in the connections. It's in the connective tissue that connects across or within uh, silos. So if we're looking at something and I'm looking at it through an economic lens, I might see something. If I look at it through a political lens, I might see something else. But when I look and see how politics and economics interact to produce the outcome, I may get a third and possibly more useful insight. And so what I find is there's plenty of dots and there's great expertise at developing those dots and generating dots. And what we've lost, I think, as a society in general, is the ability to connect those dots. And so the dot connecting ability requires some appreciation, maybe not expertise, but an appreciation for the language and knowledge of what resides within different silos so that you can connect them. One of the first boxes Vikram jumped into was finance and financial bubbles in particular. He was the youngest intern ever at Bear Stearns at the age of 15. <laughs> I don't know what you were doing at 15, but I wasn't being an intern at Bear Stearns. 
As young as he was, Vikram was a sponge that soaked up everything and questioned everything. I watched Japan go up into this bubble and burst. And then I went back to, I was in high school at the time. I said, wait, hold on a sec. Markets are efficient? Wait, no. Okay. Then I went to college and I learned markets are efficient. And then I watched the Asian financial crisis. And I said, wait, wait, markets are efficient? They don't seem efficient. And then I watched the internet bubble. And then I watched the global financial crisis. And I said, what? what, what? <laughs> and so I knew that there was something missing when an economist is telling me prices are correct, markets are efficient. And then when you connect the dot to a psychologist who says, well, people are irrational. Of course they are. You say, wait, hold on a sec. I can understand this complex, uncertain phenomenon, a financial bubble, yeah. by only really connecting the dots. It's impossible to truly appreciate or understand the nuances or complexities without connecting the dots. And in the work you do, because as you say, you are a pracademic, I love that term. So it's not just you're in your own Harvard or Yale ivory tower, but you're out there working with CEOs and business leaders and the like. How do you help them make these connections? Because when you talk about it like this, everyone's nodding. I mean, nobody disagrees with the value of doing that. Yeah. But there's a resistance in reality. How do you help people overcome that resistance? Sure. Well, I'll give you a great example, one that I'm allowed to talk about because I cleared it through their corporate compliance department, et cetera. And it also, uh, what's lovely about it is they allowed me to write it up in my most recent book as well. Um, but I did some work for uh, one of America's largest uh, and oldest companies uh, was a company called United Technologies. Uh, it was a conglomerate. Um, 100 plus year old company that had iconic brands such as Carrier for the air conditioning, uh, Otis for the elevators, Pratt & Whitney for aircraft engines, etc. cetera. Uh, this was an iconic company. And I had gotten to know their CEO and their board relatively well, Greg Hayes, a, a truly uh, impressive executive. Um, and he said to me, he says, look, I've got all these people around the table suggesting I should be breaking up this business. Right. How should I think about this? And ultimately, he retained me to tell him why not to do it. And the insight here is I believe every single perspective is limited, biased, and incomplete. Mm -hmm. So you want to get more perspectives. And it reminds me a little bit of uh, that Alfred Sloan story. Alfred Sloan, the, the legendary uh, CEO and chairman of General Motors, uh, walked into a room and was trying to make a tough decision. And uh, you know, I think he looks around and everyone's nodding their head like these bobbleheads sometimes yeah. in boardrooms do. Um, and he says, uh, okay, gentlemen, something, I'm paraphrasing. Okay, gentlemen, I see we're in complete, complete agreement. I think we should therefore adjourn uh, until we can develop some disagreement and actually understand the issue that we're discussing, because without disagreement, you can't understand it. I hear that. So I think sometimes the role of, of, of playing a devil's advocate is the way of providing that different perspective. So that's, some, that's one way I help people think differently and for themselves. You know, this reminds me a bit of Edward de Bono's talk. He's uh, just died, unfortunately. But Edward de Bono had this moment of massive popularity, I think in the late 80s or early 90s. He's kind of faded a little bit since then from our bookshelves. Yep. But he has um, a six hat method where he goes, look, there are six different perspectives you can take on the situation. And each hat had a different color. 
you'd have the devil's advocate hat that would be black and you'd have a know it all go for it gung-ho hat i think that's a white hat yeah you'd have the facts only hat that was the green hat maybe you have a feelings hat maybe i'm not sure what color that was but different perspectives there just to get out of the compliant pseudo rational way that so many of us approach decision making which is like you know it's better if i don't actually make ripples here yep yep that's right in fact the controversy produces i think better decisions vikram how about this it's all well and good to be an academic or be an outsider and come in and be able to provoke and offer different perspectives but it can somehow feel like a career limiting move if you're actually within the organization so how do you help people make connections push back against the prevailing group think you know if that's what's going on in a way that doesn't have them become the pariah in their own organization a scapegoat yeah because you know I, f- I feel like i've done that i've been the pariah i've been the scapegoat yeah yeah it's interesting i mean usually the advice i give is to the the senior executives about how to produce an environment in which you are not filtered mm. in terms of the information that bubbles up to you, right? So right. Uh, CEOs often live in a bubble of misinformation. Um, and in fact, I'll give you a great little story, which I think captures the essence of this. Um, one of the executives I got to know very well was Gary Loveman. Gary Loveman was uh, a former Harvard Business School professor who became chief executive officer of Harris Entertainment, which became Caesars Entertainment and went through a buyout with a private mm-hmm. equity firm, filed bankruptcy and sort of, he's had, he's had his, uh, his trajectory, but an insightful operating executive. And one story he shared with me, this was probably 15, 20 years ago, um, was Harris Entertainment was a completely, I, I'm, I might be getting it wrong, either Pepsi or Coca-Cola company. Let's just say it was Pepsi. So it was Pepsi products throughout their entire enterprise Everywhere they went, they had no Coca-Cola products, except Gary loved Diet Coke. So Gary would bring Diet Coke, put it in a brown bag and keep it in his CEO's office in a little corner. And he's fine. Companies, Pepsi. I'm all Pepsi everywhere in public, but I got the Diet Coke. And he goes to a board meeting. And in the middle of this board meeting, surrounded by the executives of this team, his senior leaders, board members, everyone's in the boardroom. This waiter comes in with a silver platter with Diet Coke on it. Oh, right. And brings it to him. At which point he says, that's it. Stop. Just stop. I don't need people feeding me what they think I want. I want real information. How deep is this problem? Let's evaluate and figure it out. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> what I'm getting at, a long-winded way to describe it is, I think there you have to set the conditions for people to feel safe to disagree. Right. 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 You have to set the conditions for that. And one way to do so is to actually appoint a person as your devil's advocate. It's your job, Michael, this week to play the devil's advocate or for this decision to play devil's advocate. We're not judging you. This was your job. You're not the disruptor. You're not the, the, you know, the, uh, the fly in the ointment. You are in fact doing your job. We need this perspective. Next project might be someone else. Right. But it gives, it gives, it gives sort of psychological safety and cover for that person. I like that. You know, Slightly related, I mean, it's not, not exactly the same, is when two people are having these arguments and there's a way of getting them to flip and defend the other person's argument and argue against themselves as a way of creating a robustness to the thinking. Yep. And there's a similar idea that I've heard, which is we've got to bring conflict out, controlled conflict, yep. to test the edges and push fingers into the soft spaces. Yep. 
Yeah, so it's great, Michael. One of the things I do in my class is we'll occasionally have debates set up and I'll say, okay, next week we're gonna discuss this topic and we're gonna discuss pro and con. Yeah. And you will get assigned, you students, you will get assigned which side when you arrive in class. So prepare for both. <laughs> and you see, if you don't know what you're preparing for, you prepare for both sides and you appreciate the problem. Yeah, that's, that's smart, that's really clever. Vikram, tell us what book you've chosen for us. All right. Great question, Michael. So I decided to go a little bit back in history, if it's okay with you. Oh, good. I'm excited. As long as you don't mind. No, no. So um, it's, it's a classic book. It's a, it's a little bit older, a 1969 book called The Peter Principle. Ah, that's um, brilliant. Recently republished, I think, um, in paperback, uh, probably 1990-something. Right. Uh, I forget. But it's a classic management book. And so I think, uh, I chose what I think are the two pages that capture the essence of the Peter Principle logic. Um, and we'll then tie it to whatever you want. So uh, that's what I chose. Now, before you read the two pages, how did you come across this book and why did it have such an impact on you? Sure. So I got the Peter Principle on the recommendation of one of my colleagues when I was studying for my PhD at MIT. Mm -hmm. um, you know, professors tend to have older books in their office. And so I was about to get on a plane to go to Las Vegas. Um, and I was going to Las Vegas for my research on my dissertation. I had done some work on Harris Entertainment and I was flying out to meet some Harris executives. Right. And I was in my uh, one of these professors offices and he says, you know, have you read the Peter Principle? And I was like, no. He's like, it's right there. Grab it. And I took it with me. And Michael, on the plane, you know, it was a 7.30, 8 o'clock p.m. flight out of Boston, gets in at like midnight Vegas time. It's like 3 a.m. Eastern time. Everyone's asleep on the plane. Sure. I'm up and I'm laughing and laughing out loud to the point where the flight attendant's like, what are you reading? Like, is that a humor book? And I was like, no, it's a management book. She's like, what? I was like, yeah, it's just, don't worry about it. It's just a management book. And she's like, you're laughing like you're reading the funniest thing you've ever read. I was like, it's pretty funny, actually. Oh, right. <laughs> So it made an impression. I haven't forgotten it since, and I've, I've re recommended it. And um, after we, we go through it, I'll tell you a really funny story. What I've done um, is I often send copies of the book to my friends, former clients, when they get promoted. Mm. Um, and uh, for those that don't know the story as to what the Peter Principle is, uh, it'll make more sense after I read about it. But if you know the story, you understand why that's a little poking. <laughs> well, look, I'm excited to hear it. Take it away. Hypothetical case file, case number one. Suppose you own a pill rolling factory Perfect Pill Incorporated. Your foreman pill roller dies of a perforated ulcer. You need a replacement. You naturally look among your rank and file pill rollers. Miss Oval, Mrs. Cylinder, Mr. Ellipse, and Mr. Cube all show various degrees of incompetence. They will naturally be ineligible for promotion. You will choose, other things being equal, your most competent pill roller, Mr. Sphere, and promote him to foreman. Now suppose Mr. Sphere proves competent as a foreman. Later, when your general foreman, Legree, moves up to works manager, Sphere will be eligible to take his place. If, on the other hand, Sphere is an incompetent foreman, he will get no more promotion. 
he has reached what I call his, quote, level of incompetence, quote. He will stay there till the end of his career. Some employees, like Ellipse and Cube, reach a level of incompetence in the lowest grade and are never promoted. Some, like Sphere, assuming he is not a satisfactory foreman, reach it after one promotion. E. Tinker, the automobile repair shop foreman, reached his level of incompetence on the third stage of the hierarchy. General Goodwin reached his level of incompetence at the very top of the hierarchy. So my analysis of hundreds of cases of occupational incompetence led me to formulate the Peter Principle. In a hierarchy, every employee tends to rise to his level of incompetence. This is referred to as a new science. Having formulated the principle, I discovered that I had inadvertently founded a new science, hierarchiology, the study of hierarchies. The term hierarchy was originally used to describe the system of church government by priests graded into ranks. The contemporary meaning includes any organization whose members or employees are arranged in order of rank, grade, or class. Hierarchiology, although a relatively recent discipline, appears to have a great applicability to the fields of public and private administration. This means you. My principle is the key to understanding, to an understanding of all hierarchical systems, and therefore to an understanding of the whole structure of civilization. A few eccentrics try to avoid getting involved with hierarchies, but everyone in business, industry, trade unionism, politics, government, the armed forces, religion, and education is so involved. All of them are controlled by the Peter Principle. Many of them, to be sure, may win a promotion or two, moving from one level of competence to a higher level of competence. But competence in that new position qualifies them for still another promotion. For each individual, for you, for me, the final promotion is from a level of competence to a level of incompetence. So, given enough time and assuming the existence of enough ranks in the hierarchy, each employee rises to and remains at his level of incompetence. Peter's corollary states, in time, every post tends to be occupied by an employee who is incompetent to carry out its duties. Oh, man, it is breaking my heart hearing this. Because, of course, I'm thinking of my own career and going, yep, I can see a whole lot of that in there. <laughs> and then, of course, I became an entrepreneur, which I think is some modern iteration of the incompetence which you get promoted into, <laughs> you know, trying to start your own business or yep. something. There you go. Well, the obvious, the simple way to think about it is, I mean, I've I've run across people at even something like a Panera Bread or even a Starbucks coffee, and I'm like, wow. This person's amazing. I should hire this person. Uh, and of course, you know, within a few weeks' time, they're not there. They're gone because they were so good at what they did, they got recognized as such. Yeah. What was it in particular about this that struck a chord for you? Well, obviously, there's the, you know, I, I love the fact that it sort of helps explain why life in bureaucratic organizations can be so infuriating. I've spent time sure. in large companies, et cetera. So it sort of gives me a sense of understanding. Wait, why is it that I'm so agitated by, by interacting with bureaucracy? Mm -hmm. So that's number one. But actually, Michael, the real insight that it's had 
or the, the, the profound sort of impact it's had on me has to do with focus. And we talked a little bit about this earlier, but the idea that one can be so focused on something that you miss the bigger picture. And it has to do with how we think about promoting people. Right. If you think about it, we promote people based on how they're doing in their current job, not how they may do in their next job or the job to which you're promoting them. And so we're so focused on the evaluation of the present that we're not willing to consider an alternative for the future. And so maybe the skills needed for the next job are totally different than the job skills you need for your existing position. And so it, it really is in some ways a matter of how much of a, a zoom do you have on your focus versus a wide angle lens. Mm. And I think we've gotten too zoomed in. Um, and, and the Peter Principle is one example of it in action. Right. So how do you balance this against something like Carol Dweck's growth mindset? Yeah. You know, with the perspective that there's always a place for growth and actually the process of life is just an ongoing series of failures, failures that don't you know preclude actual progress in some way. Yeah. No, look, I think uh, that book's brilliant. I, I love mindset, but that has to do with an individual. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the individual, uh, I can sit there and say, all right, I, this hasn't worked for me. And with a growth mindset, I can say, I've learned from it. I'm going to grow. I'm going to move on and do something differently in another position, another sure. company, another function, another role, another something. Um, the, the interesting thing is the, the Peter principle at least is focused on a group or, or sort of a, a group dynamic where the promotion method is too focused and that's outside the individual, if you will. Uh, so uh, the, right. sort of tangential, uh, uh, orthogonal ideas, but related. Yeah. Okay. I get that. And that's interesting. And in fact, you talked earlier about the influence of structure around people to allow conflict yep. or alternative points of view to arise. How do you, how do organizations help disrupt what is it? Hierarchy? <laughs> hierarchyology. Yeah, hierarchyology. How have you seen organizations trying to do this differently? Because there's a way that hierarchies have. It's a flaw or a built-in feature, I guess, which is just stop yep. as soon as you become the thing that you're really good at. Yeah. yeah. So I've done a lot of work with HR departments and trying to answer this exact question, Michael. And the first thing I'll say is there's no answer for sure. There's lots of ideas. I have mine. I have my suggestions and my thoughts as to what may work. Obviously, it's 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 an uncertain probabilistic phenomenon. With that said, I think one of the quick changes in framing that one can make to HR departments for organizations thinking about this sort of hierarchy logic is to start changing how people think of their careers. We've gotten so wedded to the idea of a career ladder that I'm climbing vertically up the ladder. The, the phrase I use is, why don't we think of a career jungle gym? Nice. Maybe we go up, but then maybe you have to go over. Maybe you actually have to crawl down in order to get further over. Then you go up even higher and then you come back laterally and then go up. Think of it as tours of duty where you're filling out your skill set. Think of it as a tour of duty rather than I'm good here, I'll go up here, I'll go up, I'll go up, I'll go up. That may or may not work. In some places, it might work. But I would suspect from an individual perspective, a career that goes left, right, up, down, laterally, across geographies, across functions, maybe across organizations, will prove most fulfilling and likely to help that individual excel the most. Yeah, I love that. I think I can see that connection to the title of your most recent book, Think for Yourself, which is to say, look, 
don't get obsessed with a single path. There are many routes to get to a more interesting destination. That's right. When you have these conversations with HR departments, and in fact, probably at at a more senior level as well. Yeah. Because what you're really trying to do is reimagine the structure, the way power works in an organization. What do they, what do they like about the idea? And what do they resist about the idea? Yeah, the resistance is always people have preordained logics, right? So mm-hmm. someone rose to the ranks likely by coming up a silo. If the organization, change is difficult, right? I mean, the person who's the CFO was previously the controller, previously the treasurer, and previously yeah. the assistant controller, previously an accountant, and previously an auditor at a big five firm, and that's yeah. the rank, that's, right? And so there's a pipeline. And when you make a change, what you're doing is you're trying to change the oil of a race car going around a track. It's not easy to do that. I love that you've got a d- different metaphor. That's first of all, I mean, we've all heard the trying to build a plane while it's still flying. And first of all, it's impossible. Secondly, it's just <laughs> such a tired metaphor. So I, I love that in explaining thinking for yourself, you've thought for yourself and come up with a different new metaphor. It's perfect. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. Um, no, but the point is when you have something in process, it's hard to change it, right? It's just, it's hard. There's, there's, there's baggage, there's momentum, there's other things. So oftentimes what I've seen work, it's worked in a couple organizations, um, is you say, okay, we're going to continue to respect those in the pipeline but we're gonna start a new executive leadership program uh, with the recent MBA grads as they enter our program. And this is gonna be thought of not as a career ladder accelerator, but as a jungle gym promoter. So you're gonna go from finance in this division to marketing in that division to a different geography head. You're gonna move over this country. And so of course it takes a big diversified company to be able to take this logic and offer it to people. But I tell people, you know, I've done a little bit of executive coaching, not a lot, but a little bit. And I tell people, look, you can create this for yourself, right? You can work for one company in this function here and then change companies and functions. And if you need to change geographies, go change geographies too. You'll develop your own skill set by, you know, developing yourself holistically. Yeah. You're also inviting people to feel incompetent a lot of the time, because as soon as you move from one part of the jungle gym to another part of the jungle gym, you just have to learn different politics, different structures, different language, different tools. Yes. So what's your guidance to help people move through the stages of learning? Unconscious incompetence. You haven't even discovered that you, you, know, you suck. Conscious incompetence. You realize you suck. You realize just how much you don't know. That's the moment that I think most people find most painful. Yeah. That's, of course, the learning moment as well. Then you go to conscious competence, which is when you're like, I'm getting the hang of this and I'm okay at it. And then, of course, finally, unconscious competence, which is like it's become a degree of mastery and it's kind of a so-called muscle memory. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think right off the bat, if you're proactive about this in your own career logic and you know and you have a game plan that I want to change functional roles, I want to move from finance to marketing, you're probably doing that because you know that's a lacking. Right. That's sort of a, a hole in your skill set. And if you do want to be a general manager who has the ability to have some appreciation for every silo, well, then it's important to spend time in each silo. You might need not master it. But mm-hmm. you, so you're already beyond the unconscious incompetence and that you're stepping in with awareness that you don't know. In fact, that's the very reason you're going there because you're, you're seeking out that. Sure. What I would say is that 
I wouldn't belittle or downplay the value that comes with fresh eyes. Mm. There's huge value in not bringing the baggage of expertise in that domain. And in fact, some of the more insightful innovations, some of the more profound innovations, some of the more insightful uh, changes that take place are from people who are precisely not well steeped in the domain. Yeah, who go, wait, why are we doing this again? Yes, exactly right. Yeah. So Vikram, the other tension that I see here, because I mean, I agree with what you're saying, I feel like I'm a generalist myself and you're a generalist. So we're both, you know, violently agreeing with each other in a nice piece of confirmation bias here, which of course is awesome. Yeah. We're generalists. And so therefore that must be great. It's our mutual admiration society. Yes. But then you have someone like uh, Marcus Buckingham who goes play to your strengths, work with your strengths. Don't try and broaden out and fix the places where you're weak, but double down and amplify your strengths, the things that you're not only good at, but which leave you energized and amplified. Yeah. How do you hold the tension between the power and the value of exposure to different ways of thinking and a broad level of learning, yeah. you know, being a generalist, and also wanting to play to your strengths? Yeah. So by the way, I don't think this is a binary choice, right? There, people are gradations of, and in different aspects of life, you can be one and in another aspect of life, be another, right? right? I can be very focused as a finance professional in a particular industry, evaluating companies uh, in a, my day job. But then when I go home, I've got to deal with a broad range of issues in personal life oh, right. that involve dealing with my finance. I got to deal with medical issues. I got to deal with this issue. You got to deal with that. There's a whole swath and you might need to be a generalist in that domain. So let's, I know it's easy to talk about sort of generalist and, and specialist logic as binary, but I just want to make sure that nuance doesn't get lost, that we can all be both. And even to different degrees in what we do, I don't have to be overly specialized or overly generalist. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that your word is correct, Michael. The tension is the right way to think about that. And I think there's a healthy tension there, right? I mean, I used to talk about, you know, it's important to have at least some depth in some area. Sure. Right? So sometimes, oh, what you're suggesting is a T logic. I'm broad, but I have depth in one. And I said, yeah, but only depth in one actually doesn't qualify you to have an understanding of where that particular perspective may be lacking. So really what I said is you should have two. You say, oh, okay, so this is pi, like the Greek letter pi, right? It says you have a top that goes broad, but then you have two things that go down vertically. You can keep going. Plus it's pi and everyone loves pi, <laughs> so that's good. Go. 3.14, exactly. <laughs> there you go. So that's interesting. You know, I've heard the T-shaped metaphor before. I think I heard it from IDEO, the famous big design firm. They, uh, they recruit T-shaped people, you know, uh, deep expertise, but also some broad knowledge as well. Yep, exactly. But I like this pie thing because I think it's true that if you've got some depth in two different subject areas, that sets up uh, an interesting dialogue between them. It gives you perspectives others might not have. Well, I think what it does is it also, at some level, um, and again, fully acknowledging that I'm biased and and, and talking to someone who's equally biased in my favor. So let's just put that on the table. But I actually think generalists end up being more open-minded. And, and I mm. think that's so because I know when I enter a room, I'm by definition not going to be the smartest person. There's right. always people who know more about virtually everything than I do. So I become a sponge. People, I, I know I can learn from every single person I interact with uh, because more people, more often than not, people are deep. 
And so in a particular area, and so why not take that opportunity to learn from them? Right. And so I view it as an opportunity. And I've seen other generalists take a similar approach. They're very broad in who they talk to. They learn from lots of different people in different domains. And I think that makes the whole experience richer. And therefore, you end up being, I think, more open-minded if you realize that you're not the expert. So for everyone listening, it's obvious, obvious that generalists are smarter and better looking and more successful, basically glorious human beings. Take it from two generalists. But let me ask you this, Vikram, because I think one of the things that you're pointing to about something that's essential, something that's important here is curiosity. Yeah. And yeah. of course, I find curiosity is one of the things that nobody is against in theory, but in practice, they really struggle to maintain a sense of curiosity. Yeah. How do you keep nurturing your curiosity? Yeah. Well, so first of all, I think there are people against curiosity. So let's start there. Um, sure. I mean, I, if you're running a military, you really don't want curious people. Oh, right. You don't want, you know, soldiers need to just don't think for yourself. Do what I tell you. Don't think about how you could do it better. I'm not asking you to do that. I want you not to be curious. I want you to execute, right? So mm -hmm. there are domains where, yeah, we don't want people to think. We don't want, but generically speaking, I think you're right. More people uh, think curiosity is a good thing. Um, it does wane over time, depending upon stage of life and other complications. And what I personally do uh, is I consistently sort of rotate through different domains that I don't know about to learn, mm -hmm. right? And so right now I happen to be on this kick of understanding the universe and space and outer space, nothing to do with finance, nothing, but right. So what do I do? I, I, you know, I run my own little webinar and podcast series and I interview guests from space. Like, great. I'm going to find an astronaut. I'm going to find an astrophysicist. I'm going to find some, and I go find the MacArthur grant winners. And I've talked to them on that topic. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's what I'll do. Um, and I'll rotate after I'm done with that. Okay, let's, inequality seems to be a problem of our time. Let's find people right. that really understand class structure, capitalism dynamics, historically what's worked, what hasn't worked. Okay, fine. Then, you know what? I need to understand something else. And I just go. Now, I don't know if that's just a Vikram dynamic because I have the luxury structurally, and I don't fault people that don't have this, right? That's what I do, right? I get to be broad. Uh, I get to connect dots. That's sort of the function I play. Um, uh, so I think that's one thing. But and I know you didn't ask this, but I'm going to go there. Sure. You asked about curiosity. Related, although not identical, is creativity, right? Creativity and imagination. And here there is, I think, a tangible way I, I, I do go about promoting imagination and creativity, which. Dance is a little on the edge of curiosity, but not necessarily. And here, what I recommend is people spend time reading fiction and watching movies. Uh, I love that you're saying that. Right? Yeah. So I don't, I don't know anyone who doesn't want to watch a movie, right? Who doesn't like watching movies. So, or, you know, miniseries or what have you. So I'm a big believer that part of one's intellectual development the framing of how you view the world and the possibilities within it, your imagination, your creativity, and a little bit of your curiosity, I hope will get piqued by studying scenarios that are brought to your, to your attention through fiction, mm -hmm. through stuff that's not true. And maybe it's science fiction, maybe it's speculative fiction, maybe it's just fiction. I mean, it's not true, but it's not untrue either. I have a master's degree in literature and I'm married to a librarian. Yep. So you're talking to two huge fiction readers there. Yep. And I love that yep. you've been there. 
Yeah, well, oftentimes business folks are, you know, the type A personalities, they say, I've got to read all this nonfiction. I've gotten so far behind. There's 12 new business books in my domain. I've got to get through them. I don't have time. And I'm like, you know what? You don't have time not to read fiction because fiction is what's going to contextualize it. It's going to give you a framing and thinking about the human component and possible scenarios. And honestly, most fiction is written better than most business books. <laughs> and one of the other things it does is it enables you to read business books faster and more quickly yeah. because you're able to go, look, I can discern what's useful and what's not useful in this business yep. book. Yep. No, hundred percent. Right. In fact, I'm, uh, I just picked this book up to read, um, the, the Ender's Game. Oh, Ender's Game is a classic. Yeah, I hadn't read it. Oh, totally classic. You're, you're going to love it, I think. Hey, Vikram, I've got a final question, which I like to end these interviews with. And it's broad and a bit tricky, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What needs to be said in this conversation between you and me that hasn't been said yet? Um, I think there needs to be sort of a respect, broadly defined for the context. You know, so often we, meaning Western society, because I don't know that's necessarily globally true, but Western society tends to focus on the foreground. Yeah. And we have good research on this, right? You look at a picture, people focus on the front and you look at some Eastern folks and say, well, I see the background. I think we've misweighted our appreciation for context rather than what's happening within the context. We underweight context, and I think we need to sort of remedy that a little bit. I love it's it. related to some of the stuff we've talked about, focus, ignoring, are you too focused? Are you going in a particular linear direction? Um, but context matters. And I think context is sort of that connective tissue across silos. Context is also um, really important, I think, because there's, there are these feedback loops between context and what you're paying attention to, and it affects the context, and the context will affect what you're paying attention to, which will affect the context. And so we're missing a major component when we become, pardon the, the academic term, but very reductionist. When we reduce things into their parts, we're missing what is happening within the whole. The sum of the parts and the whole are not always the same. The sum of the parts and the whole are not always the same. You know, I've just finished the final draft of my latest book. It's in copy editing, which is an exciting moment, and it's going to be published in January uh, 2022. And the experience of writing that has been, in some ways, the embodiment of this conversation. I mean, obviously, I've had to focus and focus and focus. I can't tell you how many thousands of words have been cut. I, mean, I can't tell you because if I looked it up, I'd probably cry a little. It's a, it's a lot of words that end up on the cutting room floor. But I'm always committed to writing the shortest book I can that's still useful. A book with a singular arc to it, so it has a crystalline strength and elegance to it. And some of the best bits of this book found their way into it through serendipity. Something I picked up while browsing a bookstore or a nugget from a random newsletter or a podcast that I subscribe to. And these are sources I try to make adjacent to my usual areas of focus. I don't want to become an echo chamber of myself. I want the sum of my parts to be animated by the big magic of the outside world. How about you? 
For more on Vikram, you can go to his website. It's mancharamani.com. So I'll spell that out for you because there's a lot of A's in this name. M-A-N-S-H-A-R-A-M-A-N-I.com. Mancharamani. And that's where you'll find his latest book, Thinking for Yourself, which I have a copy of and it's terrific. Along with opportunities to sign up for his webinars and his podcasts. You'll also find him on LinkedIn and on Twitter. And thank you, lovely person, for listening to this interview, listening to it all the way through. I hope you've thought about joining the free membership site, Duke Humphreys. That's where you'll get transcripts and access to other interviews and unreleased interviews and some other good downloads you can grab. Totally free, and you'll find that just on the website at mbs.works. And of course, this podcast grows through word of mouth. Your recommendation to a friend or a colleague to say, hey, this interview, you should listen to it. I think you'd enjoy it. That helps me grow the subscriber base. And it's not just my ego at stake. It actually allows me to have some influence to invite other great thinkers onto the show. So if somebody comes to mind as you listen to this conversation between Vikram and me, please pass along the news. And while you're there, if you haven't done so already, please do leave me a review on whatever your podcast app is. I know we all of us podcast hosts ask for this, but it's one of the ways the algorithm gets in our favor and success breeds success. So help me feel successful. Thank you. You're awesome. And you're doing great.